The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. guest is Doug Farmer, writer for Inside the Irish on NBCSports.com. And as we have a little break in the action here, we thought it would be fun to sort of just go back, go through week one, week two, week three, week four, in a defining moment, a defining coach, a defining player, a defining moment, whatever defined those wins. So if you would be so kind to do it with us, it's kind of a fun exercise. Well, Jack, first we should just say that what defined these wins is getting the wins, especially in 2020. But beyond that big picture item, Exactly. Exactly. So I'm, I'm going to take us to Duke. That's that's where I think we begin this discussion. It's weird even to go back and think about some of the thoughts that you had week one against Duke. As you did, what do you think defined that first game of the season most? Well, it's, it's hard to say this given what we've seen since then. But when Kyron Williams comes out of the gate with 112 rushing yards, 93 receiving yards and two touchdowns, Partly, he was unknown, partly because there was no spring practice and nobody saw any preseason. But he came out of the gate so strongly. And, and frankly, if you remember, the offensive line, what we consider now to be the best O-line of the country, was criticized after that game. So for me, what stood out right then was, well, they have a running back that, I mean, last year he got benched because he dropped one pass. Who is this guy? Yeah. And this is a different kind of guy. I mean, you, you could tell from week one. You could. And then it sort of took – two, three, four weeks before all the NFL scouts started getting in the conversation about Kyron Williams, but they are there now. And it took some things he did later on that I'm sure we'll touch on that weren't with the ball in his hands for people to realize it wasn't just the offensive line making him look good. He's also this guy, this physical, angry runner, angry player. And if you talk to the offensive line a little bit, the respect and joy that they have to block for Kyron Williams as opposed to backs that they've blocked for perhaps earlier in their career, gives you some idea how different he is. I mean, they are just – they are ecstatic every time they get to – you know, because he, he has the ability to bust them, like Clemson. I mean, that could be a nine-yard run with a lot of backs. For him, 80, 90-yard touchdown run. 
they phrase it differently than that, obviously out of deference for the backs of the last couple of seasons. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But he's the kind of guy where he just doesn't lose yards. And for an offensive line, that might be the biggest thing. It's even if we only kind of do our job, he's going to get a yard or two. He's never going to get taken down in the back of the lot behind the line. And that allows the offense to keep moving until those two or three turn into six, turn into nine. And that's what happened to Duke, and that's what Kyron said exactly after that game. First half, we knew these two, three-yard rushes, they're going to become something. That second half, Jack, if you remember, he had six rushes for 73 yards. That was him finally breaking through after 13 carries for only 39 in the first half. Totally. And you think about Travis Etienne, the whole story with him was that he had stone hands when he first got to Clemson. Yeah, he could run. He could do all these amazing things carrying the football, but he couldn't catch it all. Kyron comes into Notre Dame already with all those receiving abilities and I think it's I think it's why he's already catching the eyes of Mick uh, you know McShay and um who the heck else does Mel Kuyper Jr all those guys yep. that are putting together those NFL lists it's because the NFL running back position is such a receiving position now that a guy that can do it that young you just go man he's really got it already it's going to be a stain on a certain former assistant coach's legacy that Kyron Williams dropped one pass, basically his first snap as a freshman, dropped that pass, and then was on the bench the rest of the year. And now we're seeing this. Sure, Kyron has said he had to reshape his body, but you can't tell me some of this wasn't available last season. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Take me to South Florida. So we had Charlie Weiss Jr. coming in, returning to Notre Dame Stadium as the offensive coordinator, talked to him a bunch throughout the course of that week, and you know how excited he was. He's still in his 20s, young guy. A bad day for him, a good day for the Notre Dame defense. Well, the storyline, we I think we wanted to be Charlie Weiss Jr., but the actual storyline was a scout team player moving from scout to starter on Saturday. Jack Kaiser didn't know he'd be starting until 12.30 Saturday afternoon. He makes eight tackles with two for loss. You want to talk about defining, sure, that was a good game, but that was also – a uh, bit of a harbinger of, of 2020 that, oh, this we really do have to respond and adapt that quickly. It's it's hard to remember that since Notre Dame then had an outbreak, partially because of the, the reasons Jack Kaiser had to start. But like, right there, you saw what needed to happen this season and that Notre Dame had the depth to make it happen. It didn't have that depth in 2015, 2018. It did suddenly, so it appears to now, and Jack Kaiser embodied that. It does. It does. And I I think that's the conversation that they keep having with people that are outside of the Notre Dame program or not following or covering it that are going, why does this team seem like it's different? And I think that's one of the main reasons. I would say speed is a big difference. Depth is a big difference. And then I think this offensive line just throws you back to some of the real best. It's It's a level up from offensive lines that we've seen in the past and maybe two levels up, to be honest with you. My other note here on South Florida is O-line, especially after week one criticism. It was the O-line we all thought about when we realized there were 114-ish, I don't have the number in front of me, returning starts for this season. You think, oh, what will it be? And it it has been. And and now you wonder if it will be moving forward without it starting center by reports. But that's a different conversation. Yeah. So so to start the year, you knew that this was going to be a totally different style of Notre Dame offense, though. It was going to be multiple tight ends. Fewer wide receivers, and the receivers were already banged up. Kevin Austin was already hurt. Uh, ben Skaronic, I really thought, was going to be the number one wide receiver coming into the year. I mean, I asked Tommy Reese, if you could only keep one receiver coming out of camp, who would it be? And it was Ben Skaronic. And so that gives you a good idea that he was going to be the number one receiver. He had the hamstring injury early, 
But now later down the course of the season, he really has developed into just that. But as of South Florida, we hadn't seen it because he had that, totally. that hamstring that first half of Duke, and then he misses the next three halves. And that's where it was just the O-line in that point. It, that's a that's a heck of a question to ask an offensive coordinator before the season. If you had to get rid of every player but one, that's um, I'm surprised he even answered that. <laughs> me, too. me too. I go back with Tommy a little bit. I was a little surprised he answered it as well. But it, what better way to figure out who the number one receiver is? And nobody had any clue at that point. I mean, we were all just just guessing, you know. Just like Kyron at running back, we had no. Yes, we we expected Tommy to go multiple, and we expected him to lean on the offensive line. But we had no idea who the playmakers would be at any position, even tight end. You, you thought Tremble had a good season last year, and and Meyer comes in with all this hype, but. Who's actually going to produce? You know, there was no way to know after that that silence, that blind preseason. And really, Tommy Tremble's been relatively quiet. I mean, he's he's dominant in the run blocking game, but as a receiver, he hasn't done a ton of stuff. Let's flip it to Florida State. This is really where we saw Ian Book start to find his stride a little bit as a passer. I mean, it was a slow start, you know, even past probably the Louisville game for him. But this is where you found it a little bit, 16 of 25, 201, two touchdowns, and then a monster day for Kyron Williams once again. A monster day for Kyron, especially after, if you remember, he had that fumble in the red zone for him to bounce back from that. Uh And that's a good sign for a young back who, sure, we're praising him. We're heaping this praise on him, talking about NFL possibilities. But at that point, it was only his third career game, frankly. For him to have the mental resolve and just to come back from that is impressive. But, Jack, now here's where you and I diverge a bit. You're thinking player of the game. I'm thinking defining moment. And there were two moments in this that were more defining than anything else. One, that Notre Dame played coming off that outbreak. And that Brian Kelly very publicly, very effusively praised trainer Rob Hunt and Dr. Matt Leisler for getting them back from the outbreak and back on the field. But, two, if you remember, this was the game that gave us the football guy moment of the year, Liam Eichenberg's swollen, shut eye. Uh, for majority of a half, if not more. And and you want to talk about images that we will associate with 2020. That might be the number one. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. That That's one of the all-time shots. And then to come back into the game, I mean, that's just that's just Notre Dame offensive line in a nutshell right there. I'll, t- I'll tell you one other guy that emerged as we're on that weapons discussion. This was the first time we saw Tommy Reese decide Javon McKinley might have a chance to be one of the stars on this offense as they were on a desperate search for anybody who could step up into that role. I will own, I've been a Javon McKinley critic. He's in, in years past, he's had questionable hands and the routes were not crisp. The only moment he excelled was Bowling Green in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to give a whole lot of credit to a Notre Dame receiver for beating up on Bowling Green and New Mexico. But Florida State, he proved me wrong. He proved me wrong in, in every possible way. If, if you remember, it wasn't just that he excelled. He excelled against one of the better cornerbacks in the country. Yep. And pull in five catches for 107 yards against Santi Samuel, that's that's no small deal. He might not have found the end zone, but otherwise he took care of business for once against a quality opponent. He did. He, he's been a great run blocker all year. They'll sort of bring him on the short side of the field and ask him. I mean, they ask him to do a lot in the run blocking game, like go get linebackers, go get safeties that are down in the box. And he's always too much for them. So it made sense to me. Like he's one of the guys you want to find opportunities for in the passing game. You know, it's like he does all the dirty work, give him a chance. And as soon as they did, it happened quickly. It really did. You do. And the same could be said for Tommy Tremble, as you mentioned earlier. And I'm sure with that thought, his time will come because Ian Book realized, like, 
let's call a spade a spade. He's not going to win the Heisman. He realizes it's more important for him to keep his teammates happy than to rack up stats. It always should be the case, but even more now. And for him to get it to Javon in that moment, it, it showed a faith in him, too, that maybe Javon had not earned on Saturdays yet, but had in practice. And so for him to get that Saturday reward, I'm sure was particularly needed. Mm-hmm. Ade Ogadeji, another guy who had a big game there defensively in that Florida State game. Two sacks, two tackles for loss, five pressures, two hurries, four tackles. He had a lot of games like that early on in the year. He's been sort of up and down since. Sean Crawford had an interception there, too. Let's get to Louisville. Uh, this this Ian Book called the windiest game that he's ever played in Notre Dame. I was like, Ian, you played in some windy-ass games. You sure you want to say that? And he's like, it's the windiest he's ever played in. In fairness, my papers were flying every which direction. I had no clue what I was talking about the whole day. Uh, another big day on the ground for Kyron Williams. Defense stepped up big, but a low-scoring, just kind of classic South Bend, cold, windy day. If there's a moment this season where the offensive line deserves praise, I think it's that fourth quarter. In a yeah. game you're barely winning 12-7, a game that you have shown no efficiency whatsoever, you were able to run off seven minutes and 55 seconds with a 14-play, 57-yard drive to end the game. That is an offensive line setting the tone, deciding this game is over and we're just going to grind it out. And, and I don't know if the credit for that belongs to them, to Jeff Quinn, to Tommy Reese, to all of the above. But that was a moment where the offensive line changed things. And if you remember, they did it each of the next two weeks as well. It just wasn't as, as dramatic or as needed in a, an ugly one-possession game. It sure was. And, and that, that's a game also where they really featured Kyron Williams. Uh, you, you know all too well – Brian Kelly really likes to mix in a lot of running backs like that. If, ideally for him, he's like Bill Belichick in that way. He'd rather have three running backs that all do one thing particularly well than have run one running back that can do everything. He doesn't want to feature just one guy. I think it's for his mindset. It's too risky in terms of health, in terms of getting him all the way through the season, you know, just the longevity of it. Uh, and I think also a little bit of managing egos helps too. I think he likes to spread the ball around, but it just became clear right around that Louisville game that Kyron was head and shoulders above the rest of the group. 25 carries is a number that the Heisman candidate Josh Adams barely ever flirted with. It was a number that right. Dexter Williams, as much of a game breaker and physical runner as he was, barely ever flirted with. So for Kyron to do that, and still, I'm repeating myself here, but it's important to remember his fourth game, that was a change of tone from Brian Kelly. The fourth home game in a row they finally hit the road for Pitt and this is the passing game turned on the first 300 yard game for Ian Book started to look confident not in the wind anymore uh and this is where Tommy Reese's prediction or, or need for Ben Skoranek started to show through with boy hadn't we harped quite a bit on Ian Book can't throw the ball downfield Notre Dame doesn't have receivers who can go go vertical and Ben Skoranek just does it twice no big deal that was a change in the season without a doubt, and, and that made you start to think, if we want to talk defining moments or players or coaches, Brian Kelly just straight up saying Pittsburgh, beating Pittsburgh is about beating Clemson. That was a change in everything. It was, and this, this is a game, too, where Michael Mayer went from that true freshman that we know is going to be freakishly talented in the future to that true freshman that we need right now if we're going to beat Clemson in a few weeks, and he had a huge day. He, he started showing those little six, eight, nine-yard crossing routes where it's assumed he's going to break the first tackle, which turns it into a 14, 15, 16-yard crossing route. And that's a great safety valve for any quarterback to have. 
It is. It, it, it always feels to me like if they can ever find the rhythm. I mean, just go back and look at all the game logs. Tommy Trimble has like one catch for seven yards, one catch for 13 yards. If they can ever find a world where Mayer, Ben Skoranek, Javon McKinley, and then Tommy Trimble are all actively involved in one game where he's just working it all four. I mean, that is a lot of size. And then Kyron Williams and all the speed and athleticism, Chris Tyree coming out of the back. That's a lot of weapons if they can ever bring it all together for once. It's not that you want that to be your base set necessarily, but if that is your most consistent set that you can trot out there when you need it, I don't know what a defense can do. And and you can use that to grind out a game and end it. Or, frankly, and it's not like Tommy Trumbull is slow. You can use that to, to run a two-minute drill, and the defense is just poor personnel matched up. Mm-hmm. And speaking of defense, this was the Jeremiah Wusu koromoa game. I mean, he just – teach tape clinic of how to play the rover position, the one where he sort of looped up following the wide receiver, spun around right at the perfect moment. I mean, 99.9% of cornerbacks don't play the ball that well in the air. Owusu Koromoa doesn't play an outside linebacker. Jack, I'm sure you had heard some, some things in the offseason. I had heard some some real intriguing things about Wu in, in spring and summer training, both with and away from the team. So I had high expectations, but I'd never expected what we've seen this year in coverage, in instincts, in in pop, if you will. It has been just astonishing in every respect for, for him to exceed what were already lofty expectations. I turned on just getting ready to cover this season through sort of like the early stages of the pandemic. I was watching a lot of last year's tape and a couple years prior, and the one player that just – just continuously just jumped off was a Wusu Cormo. And it's his speed. It's his instinct. Like he just seems to see everything a second or two before other guys do. You know, Kyle Hamilton's a little bit like that too. But a Wusu Cormo is just when you watch a college game, you see an NFL player within the first couple minutes of watching it. He was consistently that last year. And now they're letting him blitz and rush and just play free. And he's just taken off with it. His understanding of a play ahead of time will come for Kyle Hamilton, but that's just the difference between a senior and a sophomore. Even if right. Wu didn't play for a couple of years, he was studying, he was learning. If you're backing up Drew Tranquil, you're learning. There's no way around it. And that'll come for Kyle Hamilton. Another guy who fits this, but it's still a ways away that it deserves mention from that Pittsburgh game is Isaiah Foskey. You see him and you realize he's a sophomore and, and he's this. If you watch some of last year during the early part of the pandemic, Remember that Stanford blocked punt? We just saw the same thing again at Pittsburgh right before the half. And I got to tell you, in a peak 2020 moment, I had that game on in front of me. And on my monitor, I was attending a wedding via Zoom. I had it on mute. They don't need to know that. But uh, <laughs> there was a little little toast right after the wedding, and somebody chimed in with the score as Foskey scores the touchdown. And I unmute myself to correct the score with the Notre Dame update. And it was just <laughs> 2020, courtesy of Isaiah Foskey. It was nice of you to do that. Uh, Bo Bauer had a pick in that game. Nick McLeod had a pick, too. So it was another good defensive day. Uh, probably Clark Lee should be getting all these game balls now that we just work our way back through it. Georgia it's Tech. Kyle Williams and Clark Lee, just all of it. All of them. Uh, literally all of them. Except for this one, though. Let's let's get to Georgia Tech. This was the first time all year that Dalen Hayes has looked like a top pick. Like we, we have all been waiting on this moment. When Dalen Hayes plays mad and he plays like it's a contract year and all those things, 95.3 pass rush grade is what he had. I, you almost never see a 95 pass rush grade. Went absolutely off. 
Well, that's going to come when you force three fumbles. Sure, the third is overturned upon review, but it's it's that kind of playmaking that you you expected and you wanted from him. But you're right, we hadn't seen it all year. And as much as it was pivotal against Georgia Tech, I think it was most pivotal of when it happened. If Dalen has that against Duke or Florida State or even Pittsburgh, he hasn't had that confidence injection right before Clemson. And injecting Jalen Hayes with confidence is injecting the entire defense with confidence. And I think they needed just that little extra confidence boost before, you know, the biggest game of their careers, the biggest game in Notre Dame in 27 years and so forth. It was. Led the team in pressures against Georgia Tech with five. Led the team in hurries with three. Led the team in sacks with two. Two forced fumbles obviously led the team. And then led the team in tackles for loss two with two. So it was just, he was just all over the field, run game, pass rush, forcing fumbles. That was the first time we've seen it. And, you know, the Clemson play at the end of the game to go get that sack, that's another one of those moments. But it's more flashy. That was a game where he finally put it together for four quarters of dominance. And it was what Brian Kelly had said the week before against Pitt when Notre Dame hassled uh, Joey Yellen, freshman starter for Pitt a little bit. Kelly said, we just haven't faced a drop-back passer. You wait. We've got the pass rush. We just haven't faced anybody who it works against. And Georgia Tech proved that true a little bit, as did Clemson the next week. Yep, another five-catch, 93-yard day for Javon McKinley, too. So that trend of his usage in that offense kept leaning up into the Clemson game, which I think we should get to. Uh, so Notre Dame Clemson been to a lot of games inside Notre Dame Stadium none quite like this none the atmosphere of this obviously but the energy inside the building even with just you know 10 15,000 people whatever it was that were in there they were so fired up and it's such a student-led party where they can spread all around the stadium and sit with whoever they want the band takes over the student section really an unforgettable night to be a part of it, uh, going into it, I wondered, will if there's a game where there's noise, even though there's only 11,000 fans, this has to be it. And I actually stuck my head out a window for the opening kickoff just to get a real sense instead of the rather thick windows in the press box. And sure, it's not as loud as 80,000 in a peak moment, but it was a football game. And that was a football crowd making some some real noise. Yep. And you, you just – when you say that was an atmosphere you'd never felt there before, it – it had been at least 15 years since Notre Dame Stadium felt like that. And fittingly, that was against the last real dynasty of college football and, and led by a star quarterback and a star running back. This all sounded very familiar. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. So, so take me, I know for, so for the entire thing, you've really been doing the defining moment, which is a better way to go about it. But for the Clemson game, who would you say was your player of the game? And it, it's harder than I thought. Like off the bat, I wanted to go Ian Book. But there were some other guys that emerged big in the most crucial moment of the year. Player of the game, immediately afterward, I said it was Book. And Brian Kelly gave Book the game ball. Much like Kyron against, what was it, Florida State, where he had that costly fumble. For right. Ian Book to fumble, maybe he doesn't get across the goal line on that run in the red zone. But he's going down at the two-yard line, and Notre Dame's going to punch it through. For him to fumble away that scoring opportunity, and yes, you expect a fifth-year senior, third-year starter to – to have the mental fortitude to come back from that. But still, you, you wondered. And this started to feel like, oh, blown two-point conversion in 15, pass interference penalty in 14. This year is just going to be a fumble at the two-yard line. This is how Notre Dame will blow it. And so he does deserve some credit for coming back from that. But then you have Kyron with three touchdowns, Jeremiah Wusukoromoa with a touchdown, two forced fumbles and nine tackles, shutting down arguably the most dynamic player in the country in Travis Etienne. 
I start to lean toward Owusu Koromoa slash Clark Lee. Wow. Wow. Okay. I mean, that's it's tough. So Kyron Williams had the run. I said Liam. In terms of Liam Eikenberg, what was a give me a play or two that you think won you guys the game? A play that you wouldn't have won without. And the first one he went back to was the long Kyron Williams touchdown. He's yep. like, when we got back to the sideline, and that was the first quarter of the game. Like when we got back to the sideline, it was the first possession of the game, right? It was like, the first official snap because the original first and ten got waved off by defensive holding. That's exactly right. So he's like, when, when we all got back over to the sideline, there was a conversation of this is our game. Like they are not a better defense than we are offense. And, and in a lot of ways, Kyron set that tone by making the safety miss, I mean, with ease. And then when he hits the Jets, he has that home run speed every single day. It's like C.J. Procise back a few years back. When he gets a chance, he's gone. That's a great comparison. And the, the way he dropped that safety, I had to watch the replay three or four times to actually believe he didn't get a hand on him. Kyron Williams just went 65 yards on Clemson without getting touched. Yep. And it, it was it was not so much that like the player came that close. It was just I couldn't believe that was a thing that had happened. And going back to the atmosphere we were talking about earlier, when he broke through the line and just had one player to beat, the stadium went silent for that quick. And once he beat it, it I haven't heard that stadium like that in years, if if not longer. It was that was a defining moment alone. Just feeling the stadium at that point. It was. And and then so you really had Ben Skoranek as Notre Dame was trying to go back down the field to tie it late in the fourth, who had a great opportunity. Ian kind of put it right on him, right coming right out of his break. I just wonder if he caught the ball a little late, goes off his hands. And the feeling inside of that stadium, about a minute and change or whatever it was, at that point, maybe two minutes, it just felt like it was over. It felt like the game was over. And I'll never forget uh, Coach Polian screaming, we still have timeouts. I was standing, I was sitting right behind the bench. We still have timeouts. We're winning this game. I just remember him walking down the sideline and slowly a wave of belief started to form. They get the stop, they get the ball back, and it was all Avery Davis, the guy nobody would have expected on that final drive. You know, we should give Polian a little more credit this season. You think about these two onside kicks, both of them somewhat pivotal, where Notre Dame got got a little bit of a, a ref help with the, the flags. That was Polian coaching the team up. The first one, if you remember, that was back, what, against Louisville. Jack Lamb knew to go get blocked before the 10 yards were up, just immediately ruining the onside kick. That was Polian coaching and mm -hmm. him having that that awareness on the sideline of, one, somebody's got to speak up right now, and, two, we do have timeouts. So let's remind everybody, he, he probably deserves maybe not Clark Lee level of credit, but some credit for Notre Dame being 8-0 right now. I totally agree with you. And honestly, it's one of the most fun parts about being in these semi-empty stadiums is that you hear a whole bunch of conversations that you never heard. You just never heard. It's the same way in the NFL. Like you hear Pete Carroll coaching his defense sometimes. Like, man, I'd always wonder what that sounded like. Now you get to hear it. But to hear one of those moments where it's like a team so deflated and who's going to be the leader, you would have thought maybe Clark Lee, knowing that his defense is about to go out there, or Brian Kelly or Ian Book. But – Polian. I mean, he's so pivotal in putting together this roster, too, yeah. in recruiting all these guys. So it makes sense that he'd be somebody they'd trust and believe in in a moment like that. And on the exact same note, all season I had wondered, who is that guy, that voice on this offense? Ian Book is a leader, but he's not necessarily somebody who's going to yell in the huddle. Yeah. And when Notre Dame released its in-house highlight reel after that game, you saw Robert Hainsey before that final drive with a minute 22 left. Robert Hainsey coming into the the huddle, meet you in the end zone. And that's when we knew, I finally knew, oh, 
Robert Hainsey's that guy on this offense. And it, it's always nice to know who is who is setting that tone. Oh, you can tell. You can tell. You have a conversation with Robert Hainsey. You can tell. He is this thing means this thing means a lot to him. And when he talks about the history of Notre Dame and having relationships with Zach Martin and Nick Martin and Ronnie Stanley and going back through the years and the impact he now wants to have on the guys below him. I mean, this is legacy type stuff. And on the point of legacy, I do think the Clemson win, it's worth a little discussion for Brian Kelly, for Ian Book. How does this rewrite how they'll be remembered in your mind's eye? Well, I disagree with the premise of rewrite because we shouldn't be writing it in the first place until they're done. But that's just me being how much it is. Yep. It's it's we com- the only two games we have to compare this to. Uh, this is NBC's 30th year with Notre Dame on NBC. And the only two games in those 30 years to compare it to are 93 Florida State and 2005 USC. And in memory, there's a huge difference in those just because Notre Dame won one. And sure, that sounds obvious, but Notre Dame fans don't like talking about the Bush Bush. They get actually upset. And it's not that it's a stain on Charlie Weiss and Brady Quinn, but people don't like it. Brady, it eats at Brady Quinn to this day. If you ever talk to Brady and you bring that up, you feel his anguish to this day. So Brian Kelly and Ian Book will forever have this peg to hang a hat on, and nobody will ever be able to argue that. You can argue parts of Charlie Weiss, obviously. You can argue parts of Brady Quinn. You can argue plenty about Tommy Reese. Nobody will ever be able to argue this on Ian Book, and nobody will ever be able to argue this on Brian Kelly. That was a win against a dynasty on a 36-game regular season winning streak. It's only losses of late were to LSU or Alabama or who cares against Syracuse when your quarterback is hurt. This was a game that mattered, and Notre Dame won it in double overtime. You don't you don't beat number one in double overtime. That's not how it goes. Yeah, I, I think it. I think it will change the way that Ian Book is remembered in a big way, just because he had sort of. It's like the like the Tony Romo type fumble where he's just crawling towards it, desperate and just like a heartbreaking that shot you couldn't even get out of your head. And he played the rest of the game, in my opinion like he had already lost him the game and he was so ticked off that he had to fight back and be perfect every lasting moment in order for redemption. And he played that way. And it was like, even when they look down and out and Ben Skoranek drops the fourth down and it's a turnover on downs, and it's the last hope and you don't have enough clock and you don't have enough wide receivers and guys are banged up for him to go trust Avery Davis. Uh, and then when you get down to the goal line, when he scrambles around to pull the defender off Avery Davis and then throws in the ball right on top of it, it was just as perfect of a close to that game as Book could have had. So I do think it, it has rewritten the memory of him. But let's not be mistaken here. People are going to say, hey, listen, Trevor Lawrence was out. They're missing three or four key defenders on defense. You didn't beat Clemson yet. You didn't beat Clemson. You beat the JV Clemson. If you want to really you know, change the way you remembered, you got to do it in the ACC championship. And there may be a little credence to that argument. I like that argument for storylines. Storylines are fun. Let's go to the ACC championship game with this ready storyline. But I don't agree with the premise as a whole. What more was Trevor Lawrence going to do that DJ Ungalale didn't do? And – and I'm not so sure that James Skalski and the uh, Clemson's rest of its starting defense is going to stop Kyron Williams in that offensive line that day. Now there's, there's a question about the offensive line moving forward without Jared Patterson, but that day I'm not sure James Skalski would have been the difference. I think Notre Dame still runs through. And what, it, what more was Trevor Lawrence going to do? DJ Ungalale, like worry about 2021, worry about 2022. He's going to be good. Yeah. Oh, he's going to be around forever. 
he's going to be around forever. Uh, it's his second. It was his second start, and he's already playing like that. I mean, I, to answer the the question about what more is Trevor Lawrence going to do, I mean, I think Notre Dame fans are scared to know what what that what that might look like. I mean, he's pulled enough rabbits out of the old head to to quote my good friend Jason Witten. So you know, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think he might be capable of doing a few other things, um, but. Yeah, I mean, they're going to, you know, Xavier Thomas will play the first half, presumably, of the next game. Uh, Tyler Davis will play the whole game. Skowski will play. Mike Jones will play. I mean, so they're missing four really key guys. I do think it will be a different matchup, but at the same time, this Notre Dame team's built different. I mean, they are built to hang with the top of college football, and in the past, athletically, speed-wise, size-wise, experience-wise, mental belief, they weren't there, and this team is there. It's built different. It's there. It's to the point that if if you lose two starting linebackers, two buck linebackers, as we saw against South Florida, you have a guy who's worthwhile starting. It's yeah. we're, we're probably about to see you lose a starting offensive lineman. It's not that you don't have an option. You have two or three options. And yeah. it might take a little bit for that option to gel, but Notre Dame is going to be fine once it gets that offensive line to gel once again. And it all goes to Pullman's recruiting and Brian Kelly's mindset. You, you mentioned earlier, how does this change Brian Kelly's legacy? Right before we got on, I had a friend text me. He hasn't watched much this year. He's been busy. Pandemic 2020, I get it. He asked, I haven't watched. Is this Brian Kelly's best coaching job? All things considered. And now you have to give some credit to 2018 when you switch quarterbacks and you take out a very successful quarterback and undefeated season. That's a bold move, and to hold the locker room together is quite impressive. But what he's done this year is is very, very standalone impressive, and will hold up as. Let's assume Notre Dame doesn't lose two games between now and, and January. It it will hold up for for a long time in that in the most chaotic year Notre Dame put together a, a relatively full schedule and handled it. I, I do think it's been his best coaching job and, and sort of evolving the identity of the offense in the middle of the pandemic and going to a two tight end run heavy sort really sort of transition Ian book from a spread quarterback that just goes and wins games from his arm to a sort of game managing quarterback that is able to pull out his best when you need him to, but it's also able to just hand it off and, and control the game and not turn the ball over uh, but he's a, he's a program builder, right? So to hire Clark Lee, to build this defense, to trust Tommy Reese, to build this new style of offense that plays the what Notre Dame recruits best, great offensive line, great tight ends, obviously great running backs. I, I do think it's been his best coaching job. And, and to do it all in the face of the pandemic, he, he may be more than any other coach in college football, was just so steadfast in his belief that the season could happen. And to do it safely and to make it, like I just thought he's just been masterful as a leader this whole year. I really have. I really do. Now, it's it's been tough, and it's getting tougher to shoehorn this season into the pandemic. But you're right. Kelly has handled it well. To be blunt, he hasn't put his foot in his mouth like so many premier coaches in the country have in discussing the pandemic. And that alone sets a tone for the team that we are doing this responsibly it's not that I don't think this is a problem. It's that I think we can navigate this in a, a responsible and a strong fashion. It's only fitting that it's this season that he gets his 100th win at Notre Dame. Those two kind of go hand in hand, and it's it's really appropriate. It's, it's good that Notre Dame recognized that 100th win and didn't say, oh, that was only number 79. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a good call, too. Let's finish with the last game, and then we'll get you out of here. Boston College last week. There, there were a couple of moments early where you're going, oh, don't even do it to it. Don't even do it to the Notre Dame community after all they've been through to get to this moment. There's no way you can throw it back to what was it, 93, and kick it back yep. to the history books. Uh, but Ben, Ben Skoranek, once again, we said that this was the one guy coming out of camp Tommy Reese would want to keep. And he finally started to look like the clear wide receiver one. And this was the receiver you expected. What he did against Pittsburgh, those downfield plays, that was unexpected. But for him to outmuscle a guy in the end zone on a fade or for him to take a crossing route and break a tackle to get to the pylon, that's what you expected from him as a Northwestern graduate transfer. So for him to, to show that aspect of his game as well, it's only encouraging for what can come down the line the next three or four games. I'm with you. Sebo Flemister, big game too. But I think probably the most encouraging thing, if you're Notre Dame fans, is just leaving the trajectory of going through all these games is that ever since Louisville, this has been the best version of Tommy Reese. Ever since the windy, most windy game he's ever played in his career, he has just gotten better and better and better. And it feels just a little bit to me like early in the year, Tommy Reese, Brian Kelly were calling plays to put something in offense a little different on tape than what they showed against Clemson. And I think they had just been building up this passing game with all the injuries at wide receiver. And I mean, if they ever get Lindsey back, if they ever, I mean, Kevin Austin, if he were back, this would have been a dynamic passing game too. And it's becoming it despite. I think more than hiding it on film, it was those injuries and, and needing yeah. to build a running game. And we're praising Kyron Williams, but the start of the year, did they really know he'd be this good? I, I doubt it. They knew he'd be good, but like this, so they had to establish that and get guys back from injury. You mentioned Lindsey. If he can just be on the field against North Carolina, which is expected, they're giving up. Listen to this stat, Jack. On third and long, true passing downs, that Tar Heel defense has given up 10.9 yards per pass attempt. Like Braden Lindsey wants to get back and get right, that's the team to do it against. Uh, it sure is. It sure is. And, gosh, he still – he pulled his hamstring with, with, you know, down about – Winning by about 40 points with five minutes left. You in hate the to see it. You, you know that the BK, this coaching staff, still kicking themselves over that moment right there. Doug, thank you so much for doing this, man. This was a fun exercise for me just to relive the season and go, that was a key guy. That was a key moment. I think it's really important to go game by game. So appreciate you humoring us and going through this with us. Oh, Jack, I'm happy to. I need the refresher too before we get to this final month. And we're going to play through February, right? Uh, you're damn right. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.